a mixture of faces across the room there. Some of you are kind of just like grinning at the screen, like, there he is, Ewan McGregor. And some of you are like, what is this rubbish? Um, show of hands, has anyone seen Moulin Rouge, the film? Yeah, Baz Luhrmann, fantastic director, one of my favourites. Um, any guesses as to what we might be talking about this morning? Anyone want to shout out? Yeah, lovely. You got it in one. If anyone was going to say musicals, then that's exciting. I think maybe Lucy should have done that talk. Um, we are talking about love this morning, and we are looking at this next characteristic of God in Exodus 34 as abounding in love. Can you see what I did? Can you see why I put this clip at the start? Um, but the model of what love looks like or feels like is often so complex and so subjective to each of us. So when we hear things like God is abounding in love, it can perhaps mean everything and nothing all at the same time. We're taught from the get-go that God is love. We've sung about it already so much this morning. I was even walking down the street the other day and there was a passionate street evangelist shouting in people's faces, you have to give your life to the love of Jesus, otherwise you will be condemned. Even in that moment, I, as a, a trainee vicar, felt, oh no, maybe I, I need to give my life to Jesus. Oh no, maybe I'm going to be condemned. But I love that we are talking about this today. I love that we are talking about this the weekend before Valentine's Day because comprehending what the love of God actually means has a life-altering effect. Understanding the way that God loves his creation, the way that God loves you, it's transformational, not only for your faith, but for your relationships, for your work, for how you spend your time and money. And it's in the book of Ephesians that Paul is almost pleading to the church that they would grasp how long and wide and high and deep this love is, that they would know the fullness of this love, that it surpasses knowledge. And that is what I would say is my desire for us as a church this morning that we too would either once again or for the first time grasp how wide, how long, how high and how deep this love is. Because there is so much influence, there is so much differing perceptions as to what love actually is. And so I think often we decide for ourselves what God's love looks like rather than actually understanding his intentions for it. And so this is what we're going to look at today. Instead of bringing our own ideas of love into the relationship that we have with him, we're going to look at how God sets this definition of love, his abounding love. Are you ready? Yeah? You're all going to be experts on love by the end of this. I hope so. Um, so in order to do this, we're going to focus quite heavily on this word chesed. And I have said it like that, and maybe you just want to try it around, um, try, it, try it with people around you. It's chesed, but it's with a little bit of a ch at the start. Chesed, yeah, that's it. Chesed. I'm going to commit to trying to say it that way every time I say it, and I'm about to say it a lot of times, all right? 
So love, as an English word, is way too insufficient to encapsulate what is wrapped up in this expression of God's character. I've used the word love almost 20 times since starting this talk, and I doubt any of you have really felt very moved or stirred by it. Our English translation is limiting, and we use the same word to explain the relationship we have with the people that we are closest with as we do with our favorite flavor of crisps. And so often it either elevates an insignificant object or it devalues something so powerful and beautiful and spectacular. So I think we should work much better at finding a better word that covers what we mean by love. And that's where this Hebrew word, chesed, becomes all the more important when getting to the essence of God's nature. It's a vast and complex word, and it can't actually be translated directly to English, but there are a variety of close endeavors. And so that's why in different translations of the Bible, you might read different words in this verse here. And so some of the close um, attempts that we have are strong, we have steadfast love, we have unwavering we have loyal love. Sometimes, even John, we talked about it last week, mercy is also used. But overall, this word chesed denotes a deep and complex commitment to love. It is a devotion. We read that God is slow to anger, abounding in chesed and faithfulness, maintaining chesed to thousands. God is abounding in devotion. He maintains devotion to his people. It is a devoted love that embodies a promise, or sometimes we even use that word covenant. And this is very much an active word. God is moving towards his people. He pursues this relationship with you because he sees your worth. He sees your beauty, and because he has unfaltering joy and pride in you. Now, a little story, I, just as a caveat, I don't really like Amazon, uh, the delivery service, not the rainforest. I don't really like using it, and that was confirmed to me all the more um, this week when I had two failed attempts at a delivery, um, and because they don't tell you the delivery slot until it's too late for you to actually be home, and so I had the third and final delivery slot, and lo and behold, the notification came through, um, and it just wasn't possible for me to get home. But I could see the van on the little tracking thing, and it was right round the corner from where I was in that moment. So I eagerly got up, put on my coat, ventured out into the rain, phone in hand, refreshing the page and pleading internally that the delivery guy wouldn't drive away before I got to him. I refreshed the page, he had. But it was still not too far away, and so I marched on, I veered round the corner and accosted the poor guy just as he was carrying a pile of parcels trying to get into a flat. Um, and when I say accosted, it was actually more like, um, hello, are you the Amazon man? <laughs> Luckily he was, and not just a random guy. Um, <laughs> now, obviously, 
You are of more value to God than my shower caddy is to me. But sometimes when we imagine God's love, we imagine that he is passively sat on a throne waiting for us to come to him. When in actual fact, it is a relentless, unapologetic pursuit of us. It is the shepherd leaving the 99 for the one. It is the father running towards the prodigal son as he arrives home. He moves towards his people. To speak to the people in the room at the moment who might count themselves out of this type of devotion, let's just unpack the wider context of this passage in Exodus 34, which we haven't actually done, I think, too much so far. Um, Whilst Moses is in the thick of this spectacular, glorious moment, God's people were in total disarray. If you read all the bits around it, this moment is set against a backdrop of their impatience towards Moses. And this leads to them choosing to worship other idols, to murdering each other, to plagues and conflict and general fallout. So not light, joyous, holy stuff. God is literally making a commitment to his people whilst those people are disregarding him. And he still chooses them. He still makes a promise to these broken, even violent people. And so I think we can strongly say that there is literally nothing that you will do that, God, that will stop God from pursuing you. The reason that God's love is so abounding is because it surpasses our human expectations or understandings. It surpasses the parameters that we put around ourselves in order to discredit ourselves from it. So any illusion that you need to wait until you are perfect, or perhaps thinking that God is not invested in your day-to-day, or even that God has forgotten about you in your suffering, this is a lie. He is devoted to you, and that still stands. And so to me, this is a far more compelling image of what love is than Ewan McGregor and Nicole Kidman dancing around in the night sky. This kind of love that God promises is far more provocative to me than a will-they-won't-they rom-com. This is what God's abounding love is all about. I will fight for you. I will devote myself to your total flourishing. It's that kind of love. And it's not only on offer, but it is promised to us. And so, what is our response? Well, again, if you look at Moses in this moment, he doesn't reason, he doesn't push back, but he simply bows his head and worships. And I think that this is a beautiful image of the insufficiency of what we have to offer God in return for what he is to us. But to God, Moses' honour, his submission was enough in that moment. I hear so much in conversations of people not feeling proud enough of themselves or not feeling like they've done enough to impress or please God. 
I have conversations all the time, even with those of us inside the church where we measure ourselves against another person. We see that they are successful and so we assume, well, maybe God, God must love them, so I must be more like that person. But we can't let these insecurities, these shortcomings infiltrate our simple acceptance of the fact that God is devoted to you and who you are. He loves you. Not just the good stuff, but the flaws and insecurities too. That's the point of a promise, is that it is unrelenting and unwavering. That is what we understand chesed to be. And so this isn't just a solo experience. This isn't just between yourself and God. Chesed is mentioned 245 times in the Bible, which is quite a lot when you think about it. It's 75% of those times is between God and his people. But the final 25% is between humans to other humans. We love because he first loved us. We are to show this type of devotion to one another. An example of this is the story of Ruth in the Bible. There's a few characters involved in it, but bear with me. Ruth, um, she was the daughter-in-law of Naomi. um, And in this story, Naomi's husband and both her sons have died, leaving Ruth and Naomi as widows. Naomi, the mum, makes the decision to return to her hometown and implores to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, as well as there's another daughter-in-law, which will make sense because the scripture is plural. Um, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home to another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud. In other words, the get out clause was offered to them. Security and stability within society was still an option for Ruth. In a society where a woman's worth was only attached to marriage, she could have chosen the safe option. But Ruth chooses something different. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. This devotion to each other was not between husband and wife. It wasn't even between mother and biological daughter. This relationship was one of circumstance. And this kind of devotion to another was binding and powerful and crossed functional and generational parameters. It was a covenantal family bond. And perhaps it looked a little bit foolish from the outside looking in. But that is the point. Chesed love is a little bit foolish to rational, reasonable eyes, particularly within flawed and broken communities. God is holding a devotion to us and is asking us to do the same to others. We will let him down in that and others will let us down in that. 
But that is the difference between holding ourselves to God's definition of what love is in comparison to what media, friends, relatives, or even previous partners might have imposed upon us. How does this execute itself? Well, I think it's as simple as leaning in. Leaning in and being present to those God has placed around you. In the story of Ruth, she could have taken the simple route. She could have remained married, she could have remarried and been comfortable, but she didn't. Her devotion to Naomi was such that she, that she sacrificed comfort to both honor Naomi and support her on the journey to her hometown. She gave of her full self to that relationship. I'm sure that most of us in the room won't have to choose between a marriage and a pilgrimage through a desert. But there are similar ways that we can embody this today in our city, in our church, in our friendships. It's committing to praying with and for the people that you have said you would pray for. It is turning up on the doorstep of someone who is grieving and letting them ugly cry on you. It is being the quickest and the loudest to celebrate the achievements of those you know. We are called to be people of fruit. We are called to bear goodness and kindness and peace. This is about living a passionate, spirit-led life. And because all of this stuff is important, nothing is casual about it. Kessid love is not a casual word. And so if God has been unwaveringly present, if he has been loyal in our lives, then we can be that for others. Now my reality check is that you cannot operate at this level of devotion to any and every person that you meet. You are not God yourself. You would burn out and become exhausted. But what I wonder is that if we were people of integrity, of commitment to the friendships, relationships, and even colleagues that we see on the daily, that this would be transformational. It would be transformational for them to reinstill their worth and understanding that God cares for them. And it would be transformational for your faith as you learn to love in the way that God loves. Because people notice these things. People notice when you are a good friend, parent, partner, or colleague. People notice when you are present and give of your full self. When you don't check out or jump ship at the first sign of conflict. Just as God is committed, resolute, and giving of himself, he is asking us to be the same for others. I just want to finish um, with this quote from a theologian. Um, the language is a little bit, you've got to get your head around it. It was actually written in the 1500s. Um, but this theologian is writing about this passage in Exodus, and he's talking about the nature that God reveals. He says, he is shown to us as he is himself, but as he is towards us, this is God. God is shown to us not as he is himself, but as he is towards us. 
so that this recognition of him consists more in living experience than in vain and high-flown speculation. Let me read that again. God is shown to us not as he is himself, but as he is towards us, so that this recognition of him consists more in living experience than in vain and high-flown speculation. This is not something that lives in our heads. Abounding in love is not theoretical ideology. It is God's active, living pursuit of you. It is more than just something to be talked about or even sung about. It is to be received and then it is to be lived out with full confidence. My hope, as I said at the start, is that we can flip the way that we understand our limited view of love and allow God to set what that is for us. What I can't define for you in this moment is the exact amount that God loves you. Because I think it's meant to be mind-blowing. I think it's meant to be overwhelming. Else why would people give everything for it? God's abounding love, when taken hold of, should set the stage for our whole life. His devotion towards you should be the marker of everything else that you measure against. His loyalty towards us through all circumstances inspires us to be the same for others. Moses' response is a model to us of how to respond to this taking the big picture of who God is, that he is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and eternally faithful. All Moses could do in response to that was worship. And so that is what we're going to do now. If I could just invite the band to come up and get ready. You might be in a place where you are in awe of God, where you are enamoured with him at the moment, where you can see his fullness and his faithfulness in your life. You might be feeling a little bit stale at the moment. Things might be stale between you and God. This might be a completely new thing to you. I even feel like for some of us in the room, the thought of Valentine's Day this week is bringing up different feelings and anxieties. And so my hope for however long that we've got next, we've got a good chunk of time, is just actually that we can stay in that place and be in awe of the fullness of love that God has for us. Because as I said, everything else flows out of that place. Everything comes out of knowledge of that. So why don't we just do that? Maybe you physically want to bow your head in acknowledging the greatness and the gloriousness and the power of God. Maybe it's that thing of holding out your hands to to receive the gift that He has for you, this gift of love that He is so eager to bestow on each of us. But Lord, we, we answer this gift with gratitude, with thanksgiving, with praise. 
We thank You, Lord, that You are pursuing us, that You are devoted to us. And so, Lord, I pray that in this moment, each of us in this room, in whatever way is unique and special to the relationship that You have with us, we would know the certainty of that love. Come and speak to our hearts once again, Lord. We thank you, Jesus.